Hi, I'm Katie Burke, Associate Editor at American Scientist Magazine. In our Pizza Lunch podcasts, we interview scientists who give lunchtime lectures at our headquarters in North Carolina. Ed Breischwert is a veterinarian and professor of medicine and infectious disease at the College of Veterinary Medicine at North Carolina State University. He is also an adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Disease at Duke University Medical Center. Breischwert has spent the last two decades studying a genus of bacteria called Bartonella. These bacteria can live in the bloodstream of mammals and are transmitted between them by a variety of insect vectors. His research has linked Bartonella with a variety of chronic and acute symptoms that vary across species but include humans. I first asked Dr. Breischwert about what species harbor Bartonella and a little history of his work on the bacteria. We went from essentially not knowing that Bartonella species existed in animals or humans in North America in the 19, in 1990 to now finding Bartonellas in almost an, every animal that someone has taken the time to investigate. For instance, cows are infected with Bartonella bovis, deer are infected with Bartonella chambuensis, sheep are infected with Bartonella melophagia, rabbits are infected with a Bartonella, flying squirrels are infected with a different Bartonella, gray squirrels are infected with a different Bartonella, groundhogs are infected with a different Bartonella, and when you get into rodent species, you know, such as mice, voles, cotton rats, the diversity, the genotypic diversity amongst the rodents is just absolutely amazing. We've gone from two named Bartonella species in 1990 to over 33 named species at this point, and half of the Bartonella research labs in the world have isolates in their laboratory or DNA sequences that they've obtained from patient samples that don't match anything in the database. So there's the most recent Bartonella to be officially named was Bartonella australis in kangaroos in Australia. Um, there are other researchers in Australia looking at other marsupials, so it seems as the unique development, evolutionary development marsupials, there was a unique evolutionary co-development of Bartonella species within these marsupials. And this is what's making the ecology so complicated in trying to understand these bacteria and and from a veterinary medical standpoint where we want safe pets and safe animals for people um, it's created quite a problem that it's going to take a while to sort out and correct. I arrived in North Carolina to a new veterinary school in 19 uh, 82 and at that point made a change in my research direction from studying kidney diseases in animals to starting to study infectious diseases and initially my lab worked on Rocky Mountain spotted fever and then we moved on to two other tick-borne diseases that are very important in both animals and humans the Ehrlichias and Babesias and ultimately, as a result of attending a scientific meeting, uh, we started focusing on this genus Bartonella in and around 1992. 
I initially learned about Bartonella at a American Society of Rickettsiology meeting. Uh, Rickettsiologists are a very small subgroup of bacteriologists around the world. And at that meeting, a CDC rickettsiologist, Dr. Russell Rignery, had made the association between a new bacteria that was isolated from the blood of an AIDS patient to a disease process that is associated with cat scratches or bites that's called cat scratch disease. And having known rust for a number of years, I asked him how hard this bacteria was to grow. And his comment was, uh, if you can find three feral cats in Raleigh, you can probably make an isolate. And that was the type project that a PhD student could tackle since we didn't know anything about Bartonella and cats at that point in time. And almost anything that we would do would be new, novel, useful information. And shortly after that, Dr. Dorsey Cordick worked with me on trying to sort out what was going on in cats. We, while Dorsey was in the lab, um, she did a number of studies looking at cats and the transmission to humans. She did a number of studies um, trying to understand how long a cat would be infected, where we could find the bacteria, what type of antibody response occurred after infection in the cat, uh, essentially to start giving us some diagnostic tools in which we could use to figure out whether a cat was infected or non-infected and whether a cat posed a risk to a human, someone in the family. During Dorsey's research and towards the end of her PhD studies, um, I had a dog present as a clinical patient in the hospital and with the permission of the owner, it was the very first dog that we tested for Bartonella because by then there was a association with Bartonella infections and endocarditis in humans. As somewhat luck would have it, we were able to make an isolate of a new Bartonella species that no one had ever seen and we were literally lucky to have selected that dog because the dog was being immunosuppressed by the veterinarian because he thought he was treating systemic lupus erythematosus. We subsequently went on to show that infection with Bartonella can induce a false positive lupus test in dogs and therefore a subset of dogs with the diagnosis of lupus are probably inaccurately diagnosed and actually have Bartonellosis. So you mentioned that Bartonella can also be found in humans and it causes something called endocarditis. Can you describe what that is and, and what happens when Bartonella gets into human bloodstream? Endocarditis is an infection of a heart valve. The association between this new genus of bacteria that really we didn't understand was of medical importance in either veterinary or human medicine um, occurred in the early 1990s, but it wasn't until 1993 that the first three cases of human endocarditis were reported, and then it was at the end of 1993 when we made the isolate from Tumbleweed, the dog that had presented to our hospital. What 
we've learned since then uh, is that endocarditis is just one of the disease pathologies that can develop in association with Bartonella circulating in the bloodstream for long periods of time. We know that these bacteria are capable of infecting human erythrocytes or rib blood cells. Um, We know based on experimental rodent models that they can invade endothelial cells and live in the lining of the blood vessels. Um, And we know from in vitro studies in a number of laboratories that they can infect professional immune cells such as circulating macrophages, um, dendritic cells in the skin, or microglial cells in the brain. So I think one of the aspects that makes the genus Bartonella a very medically unique group of bacteria is the fact that they have a very slow dividing time. They're very difficult to isolate from patients. They are able to hide from the immune system and evade immune recognition, um, both by having an intracellular localization as well as seemingly interfering with the antibody response of the patient. So when people uh, get Bartonella in their bodies, how does that happen? How do they get infected? And what happens after Bartonella has been transmitted? We really don't know as much about transmission as we should at this point in time. And it's basically due to the fact that um, those type studies are not particularly sexy and therefore a, a lot of work has not been funded or done in those areas. We clearly know that Bartonella can be transmitted amongst reservoir hosts by a vector, and that's the most typical means of transmission for all Bartonella species. The, again, disconcerting aspect of Bartonella and vector transmission is that these bacteria can be transmitted by sand flies, by lice, by fleas, by biting flies on cattle, by wingless flies on sheep and deer. And there is now at least laboratory evidence that Bartonellas can be transmitted by ticks. So unlike certain very serious and important viral diseases where a single mosquito species can transmit that particular virus, we have a group of bacteria that can be transmitted by many, many different vectors. Most recently in our research, we have generated data to support the possibility that spiders may transmit Bartonella species and that tropical rat mites, um, which are prevalent throughout the world, can transmit Bartonella species to animals and humans. In addition to vector transmission, um, my laboratory and one other research group in Asia has documented needle stick transmission to veterinarians. So historically, veterinarians weren't too concerned about needle sticks because we weren't dealing with HIV um, or hepatitis virus or organisms that could be directly transmitted from a human patient to a physician or nurse. Uh, Now we have to be a lot more concerned. There is also some evidence supporting perinatal transmission. Um, That evidence is very preliminary, and we have followed other 
mothers who were bacteremic who were treated, and to date we have not identified a child that became infected. The number is very small, but in the four cases we've been involved with, there was no evidence of transmission um, from a bacteremic mother that had been treated to a child. How have you been able to show disease causation by Bartonella species in both the animals that you've seen as, uh, as a veterinarian and then also how has the medical community started researching it, humans? In the context of the genus Bartonella, uh, disease causation is a complicated issue. The complication comes from the fact that we have a highly adapted bacteria that has figured out a way to live within the bloodstream of numerous mammalian species throughout the planet without being highly pathogenic and inducing disease. When a reservoir adapted Bartonella, essentially a Bartonella that you might find in a cat or a squirrel or a cow, is transmitted to a non-reservoir host such as a human, then it appears that developing disease is much more likely. The best evidence for Bartonella disease causation is what we discussed earlier, and that's endocarditis, because all endocarditis cases are caused by a bacteria, with Staphylococcus, Streptococcus being the most common causes of animal and human endocarditis, but with Bartonella being a very important and previously unrecognized cause of endocarditis. The other way that we have suggested that Bartonella can be implicated from the standpoint of causation is actually in a manuscript in the Journal of Comparative Pathology suggesting that if you can identify the same pathogen, be it a bacteria, virus, a protozoa, in tissues, be that blood, cerebrospinal fluid, a liver biopsy, a kidney biopsy, what have you, of three different mammalian species, then that would satisfy the postulate of comparative infectious disease causation and support the possibility that these bacteria were actually causative. All microbiologists and physician infectious disease researchers understand that trying to sort out causation in extremely chronic infections is epidemiologically challenging and can be clinically challenging as well. I think the other way that we can address causation, and it's certainly been proven by some of our case studies and case reports, is documenting the presence of the bacteria in the blood, documenting that it's viable and that bacteria will grow in enrichment culture media, and then treating the patient with antibiotics, having the antibody response go away, the ability to find the bacteria in the blood. Um, Essentially, we no longer find the bacteria in the blood, and the patient gets well, and that's another way to implicate causation. How is Bartonella tested for in a patient that's manifesting some of these symptoms that are known to be associated with Bartonella, and how do you treat it? From the research through the 1990 and early 2000s that made strong associations between 
Bartonella and endocarditis, Bartonella and granulomatous inflammatory disease, Bartonella and vasoproliferative type lesions in immunocompromised patients. What we developed was a novel way of trying to find these bacteria in animal and human patient samples. Because Bartonella's could be transmitted by so many different insect vectors, we elected to see whether they would grow better in an insect biochemical composition growth media as compared to a mammalian growth media. Importantly, whether we're discussing animal health or human health or veterinary microbiology or human microbiology, microbiologists have used mammalian growth media to grow organisms from mammalian patients. And so our idea to try an insect growth media was absolutely novel. Um, most folks using these media to support the growth of insect cells did not want bacterial contamination of their cell culture systems. And yet when we, in the laboratory, took seven different Bartonella species and did growth curves, we could get better growth curves in a insect growth media, which we subsequently went on to optimize further um, than we could in any mammalian growth media. That work's been report, repeated um, by Volkart Kemp's group in Germany with the Max Planck Institute. That work has been repeated um, by Michael Kasoy at the CDC. And I think one thing that we have now accomplished, in addition to providing researchers and diagnosticians with a new tool, is a agreement amongst Bartonella researchers that these are highly fastidious bacteria. They're extremely hard to find in patient samples, and that's the reason they were missed. As a result of that, we started testing people that had arthritic disease or neurologic disease. And at least based on case reports and response to therapy, there are a substantial number of people with Bartonella in their blood documented by techniques that we develop that have chronic arthritic or neurologic manifestations of their disease. So what appears to be the case is that we didn't know Bartonella essentially existed as a cause of human disease. We then found the most severe pathologies, such as endocarditis or this complex granulomatous response in the liver or vasoproliferative tumor-type lesions in the skin or other areas. And now we've come to realize that these bacteria can hang around in human blood for months, years, and perhaps decades, and that the interaction with stress, nutrition, infection or exposure to other agents, perhaps even influenza virus, can then tip the balance so that the immunologic balance between the patient and the bacteria no longer exists and disease develops. Um, so there's a lot about particularly the neuropathogenesis of Bartonellosis that needs extensive research. Um, I think what we know right now you can put in a thimble what is very clear is we've got a genus of bacteria that is prevalent in nature, that is transmitted by a spectrum of vectors, that has many animals in nature as reservoirs, 
and that can periodically, by means that we don't clearly understand, sometimes bites and scratches clearly is one mechanism of transmission, but I'm sure there's others, um, end up infecting a human. How has the medical community received your research? Are doctors looking for um, or aware of Bartonella? Do you feel like they need to be more aware? That's a very good, very interesting, and very complicated question. And for a number of years, I hoped that Bartonella would reach what they refer to as the tipping point the tipping point where there was more general acceptance that this genus of bacteria might be an important cause of illness in animals and human patients. Um, we've still not reached the tipping point for the genus of Bartonella where there is acceptance that this bacteria deserves more um, attention from researchers and funding agencies than has occurred historically. However, um, if you were to graph the publications in PubMed, you will see that Bartonella over the last couple years is on a direct vertical course, that manuscripts are being generated by numerous laboratories now around the world. And I think particularly, and I'd credit my very small and very hardworking research group at NC State with the development and use of the BAPGM Enrichment Blood Culture Platform, for putting enough case reports, enough case series, and at least two large patient series in collaboration with Dr. Robert Moziani, a rheumatologist in Maryland, into the literature that our results cannot be ignored. And either other researchers are going to have to prove, as has been suggested by some reviewers of scientific manuscripts we've submitted, that our results are inaccurate and a reflection of contamination in the laboratory um, or that our results are accurate, they're real, and we actually do have a real problem that needs to be addressed in patients. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. It was certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Kate. I produced this Pizza Lunch podcast as Associate Editor of American Scientist magazine. The magazine is published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Ardent Octopus, courtesy of Medios Musicali.